Iran's foreign minister attends a UN Human Rights Council meeting in Switzerland and has smiling photo ops with UN and Western officials. But as we hear from Geneva, he also heard strong criticisms of Tehran from some of those same diplomats. When they gave their speeches, they condemned the Iranian government for its repressive actions for horribly executing peaceful protesters. Plus, we'll find out how jailed activists inside Iran have used hunger strikes as a tactic to win concessions from the authorities with mixed results. And later in the program, a journalist in Los Angeles tells us how young Iranian-Americans there are being inspired to protest by the young activists driving protests in Iran. Their passion for freedom has resonated with these younger Iranian-Americans. And so they've, they've found this common bond, this common cultural language. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Iran. Good morning, I'm Michael Lippin in Washington. Iran has tried to deflect responsibility for its violent crackdown on months of peaceful anti-government protests by having its foreign minister give a speech in person to the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva and blame outsiders for recent unrest in his country. Hossein Amir Abdullahian spoke Monday on the opening day of high-level speeches at the council's annual meeting and made reference to nationwide protests that erupted last September against Iran's Islamist rulers. Those peaceful assemblies turned violent following the maling interference by some terrorist elements. In this respect, a number of Persian language TV channels based in the United States and the UK acted as propagators of violence. One of the channels that Amir Abdullahian appeared to be referring to, Iran International, has said its staff faces threats of potential terrorist attacks backed by Tehran. The network relocated operations from London to Washington in February because of those threats, but vowed to keep providing independent news to Iran's people. The U.S. State Department said the Iranian foreign minister's remarks serve as a disturbing reminder of the hypocrisy of the Iranian regime as it violently suppresses peaceful protests. Spokesperson Ned Price also said the U.S. ambassador to the council boycotted Amir Abdullahian's speech. Iranian diaspora activists gathered outside the council building to denounce the Iranian foreign minister's presence and chant slogans against the Islamic Republic. For more on what happened when Amir Abdullahian spoke to the council, I was joined on the phone Tuesday by correspondent Lisa Schlein in Geneva. Well, what happened was he gave his address without any repercussions. There was a campaign which has been going on for the past month in order to get uh, the delegates who were attending the Human Rights Council to walk out. And unfortunately, it didn't work out the way that UN Watch, which uh, is a, a non-governmental organization here in Geneva, wanted it to be. It turned out to be rather disappointing. They would hope that when the minister got up to speak, that the delegates in the room would walk out as a sign of protest against uh, the oppressive regime in Iran. And what they were looking for was something similar to what happened a year ago, 
right after Russia invaded Ukraine, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, spoke to the UN Human Rights Council uh, remotely because uh, he was barred from flying to Geneva. So he didn't see what was happening, but it was a, a really dramatic moment. As soon as he started speaking, everyone in the council chamber, about a hundred people from dozens and dozens of countries just walked out of the chamber and he spoke remotely but to an empty room. And that didn't happen uh, this time with the Iranian foreign minister. No, it didn't. It was disappointing what happened. There There were about a, a couple of dozen of people, mainly from Iranian and NGOs and also other human rights activists that walked out. But uh, it, as far as one could tell, there were not any of the delegates uh, from the member countries that did walk out. Have you learned anything about why we didn't see delegates from the various member countries walking out with those activists? It's difficult to speculate why they didn't do this. It's not that they, or at least a lot of them, don't particularly approve of what is happening in Iran. I think they don't do that, but I guess they had the reasons for not doing that, so they remained where they were. However, there were other ministers, other dignitaries who spoke that day during the uh, high-level segment, and some of them uh, did mentioned their criticisms were rather critical of what was happening in Iran. And when they gave their speeches, they condemned the Iranian government for its repressive actions for the way it has been arresting and in some cases horribly executing peaceful protesters. Well, we also saw yesterday on the sidelines of the uh, Human Rights Council opening session, the Iranian foreign minister having some bilateral meetings with some of the same officials and representatives of countries that have been very critical of Iran, not just uh, at that first day of the opening session, but also in the past months. Amir Abdullahian had bilateral meetings with the foreign ministers of Norway, Finland, Belgium. He even met with the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, and the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk. And uh, there were smiles in some of these uh, photo ops. What do you think uh, explains the rather cordial meetings that uh, the Iranian foreign minister had in light of all the criticism? Well, I have to tell you, diplomats are very polite. <laughs> that That's part of uh, their mission. That is what they do. Otherwise, they wouldn't be called diplomats, right? But I have to tell you that I spoke with Hillel Neuer, who is the executive director of UN Watch, which spearheaded the campaign to have delegates at the council walk out during the Iranian minister's speech, as we know, that didn't happen. And he was particularly upset about this, what you just mentioned. And he said that what Iran does is it uses these photos as propaganda touting the fact that the foreign minister, you know, was really not a pariah, but was actually there meeting with various dignitaries. And indeed, what happened was once these pictures were taken, they immediately were broadcast. And it, uh, you know, as an example, showed the world that they still had legitimacy. 
Right. The Iranian state media definitely uh, published some of those images. And uh, thank you very much for uh, giving us an overview of what happened on that first day of the Human Rights Council opening session. Correspondent Lisa Schlein in Geneva, thanks for coming back on to Flashpoint Iran this week. You're welcome. Happy to do it. Thank you. VOA's Persian service is reporting that at least six jailed dissidents were on a hunger strike in Iran as of Monday, mostly to protest lengthy prison stays without any judicial process and poor prison conditions. A special VOA Persian TV program on February 16th looked at the phenomenon of hunger strikes in Iran and the dissidents who have used the tactic, including prominent human rights lawyer Nasrin Satuta and her friend Farhad Mesami both of whom are now out of prison. Mesami was freed in February after disturbing photos appeared on social media showing him looking emaciated while continuing his hunger strike. VOA Persian senior TV host Siamak Deganpur interviewed Satuta for the program, and I asked him what she said about her experiences of being on hunger strike. Nasrin Satuta, in her first interview with the Farsi-speaking media after a while, talked about at least five times that she went on hunger strikes over the course of many years. In some, she succeeded in making authorities uh, meet her demands, but there were other cases where she had to drop some of her demands to get them to stop, for instance, harassing her family. Well, you mentioned that Nasir Satuta's family was being harassed. What specifically was she demanding uh, while she was on hunger strike? And did she get any positive uh, responses from the authorities? Yeah, uh, she told me that there were cases that, for instance, a book or the Irish that she was writing as a mother, she was writing private stuff about her motherhood and the relationship uh, she had with her son and then uh, the same thing with uh, her daughter. Those things were taken and she felt that her privacy was violated, so she went on hunger strike to make sure those were uh, returned. And some of the, I think, computers that her husband was using for his work was also taken. So that's why she went on, in one case, on hunger strikes to make sure those were returned to her family. And actually it happened, uh, but it took her to go on hunger strikes to make sure that that happens. But there were other cases that she had multiple uh, requests and she noticed that uh, she's not going to get those demands met. So she dropped some of the demands uh, she had to focus on some more practical demands she had. Uh, so it just varies in case to cases uh, how successful her multiple hunger strikes were. Well, you mentioned that she was trying to achieve uh, different objectives with her hunger strikes. And in some cases, authorities granted her requests. And in other cases, especially when it comes to political demands like stopping executions of prisoners or freeing dissidents, the authorities did not accept those demands. So what did she say and, and what did other former prisoners say about why they were able to achieve certain goals, let's say the more personal specific goals, but not the bigger, broader goals? Uh, as you know, I mean, cases are different. Every case is different than others. But uh, what uh, we have learned uh, during the uh, production of the show and hearing, listening to many cases of hunger strikes 
uh, some people have died. I'm sure you heard the case of Akbar Mohammadi many years ago. Uh, so that's why there were some concerns uh, about how to conduct yourself. And people keep saying, don't go uh, on hunger strikes if you uh, think there is no exit strategy for you. So you have to be very careful because you are basically putting your body in uh, on front line. So it's just a matter of life and death in many cases. And that's why those bigger demands, as you mentioned, stop executions or uh, freeing the political prisoners, uh, when they go on hunger strike for those demands, and most of the times the demands were not met, you have to have a way of coming out of it because sometimes the government apparently i mean uh, they don't care if even people die for it but uh, other practical uh, demands uh, what i've seen and what i've heard uh, it's been basically very successful so it shows that uh, you have to have a clear uh, mindset of where you want to go with your hunger strike well as you know any activist in iran who speaks on the record to western media is taking a risk of reprisal from Iranian authorities who frequently charge these activists with spreading anti-government propaganda. Nasrin Satuda not only did a rare interview with you in February, but also with CNN earlier in the month. What has Nasrin Satuda said about why she takes this risk? And why do you think she's doing that? As far as I know, uh, the main reason she spoke out was because of the situation of Farhad Meisami. So she felt responsible to speak out about that case because they know each other closely and they worked in many cases. If you even Google Nassim Sutudan Farhad Meisami's uh, name, uh, you see some of the pictures that they appeared in some um, small events if they had uh, some demands in a very non-violent way. That was years ago. You would see pictures of them together uh, demonstrating in Iran. Correct. So that's why she says that she felt uh, she had to do something, despite the fact that, you know, as you suggested, uh, these interviews require lots of uh, courage in terms of the uh, political repercussion it might have for them. And so Nassim Sutud has been as you probably know, on medical furlough since around uh, July, August of 2021. And about four or five months later, her medical furlough changed to something called postponement of the sentence. And what that means is that her time outside of the prison won't be considered part of her jail time, uh, and she could be called back to prison whenever they want. So Ms. Sutude was given uh, I'm sure many people know more than 38 years of uh, jail time, including 148 uh, lashes for different cases. But 10 years of that uh, was executable, uh, in which she spent about three and a half years of it in jail. So basically, the government claims that she's no longer in prison, but they won't waive her uh, jail time and use it as a pressure point to keep her inactive and silent. And since her permit to practice law has not been extended, she also cannot keep defending cases of uh, human rights violation in courts. So that's her situation. And that makes it more interesting, uh, as you mentioned, uh, how she came out to speak about those uh, situations. Well, you're right. It's even more remarkable uh, that she would give that uh, in-depth interview to you, considering that, as you were saying, she could be called back 
to prison at any moment to fulfill the rest of that very, very long sentence. Siamak Deganpur, senior VOA Persian host and producer, speaking to us from Northern Virginia. Thanks very much for being with us again on Flashpoint Iran. Thank you for having me, Michael. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Iran. I'm Michael Lippin. The U.S. West Coast city of Los Angeles has seen a series of mass rallies by Iranian Americans in solidarity with the protest movement that began in Iran five months ago. The biggest of those L.A. rallies happened on February 11th, coinciding with the 44th anniversary of Iran's Islamic Revolution. An article in Los Angeles Magazine quoted L.A. police as saying 80,000 to 100,000 people attended. The article's author, Iranian-American journalist Carmel Melamed, was at the rally, and I asked him what impressed him the most about it. I think the most interesting aspect of that protest were the sizable Iranian-American community from all over California. You have Iranians from Northern California, San Francisco, San Jose, Sacramento, Uh, from the Silicon Valley area, as well as uh, Iranian-Americans from Southern California, including uh, San Diego, Orange County, Los Angeles. This was a really huge gathering of the community uh, on the West Coast. The Iranian-American community's largest population is in California. So for them to come out in such huge numbers from all over the state was pretty amazing. And another aspect that surprised me was the fact that the majority of these protesters that were Iranian American were not older people. They were younger people. And by younger, I mean teenagers, people in their 20s. They were not born in Iran. They've heard about Iran from their parents and their grandparents and They've followed what's going on in, you know, their, their family's former homeland, but they felt a connection to their people, to the culture, to the country, and they came out and they, they, they were voicing support for those protesters in Iran that are subsequently their own ages. How do you think they developed that connection that you talk about? Absolutely, the connection has come through social media. You have these young people, young Iranian-Americans that are on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Telegram, Facebook. They're interacting with young Iranians of their own age in Iran, and they're seeing these brave protesters, majority of which are, I would say, under age 25, uh, people their own age, and they've they've connected with them age-wise. Their passion for freedom has resonated with these younger Iranian-Americans. And so they've, they've found this common bond, this common cultural language, and they've decided to, you know, be their voice in America. What kind of support have these Iranian-Americans in Southern California received from the wider community, from the non-Iranians out there, from politicians, the entertainment industry? What can you say about that? Shockingly, it's been very limited. There have been a few elected officials um, in Beverly Hills, which has a uh, large Iranian-American community. 
a few elected officials from the city of Los Angeles. The February 11th protest, which was the largest, uh, had the mayor of L.A. show up, uh, which was very nice. But you, you really haven't seen too many local elected officials or, or even state officials that have come out to support the community. Here and there, there have been uh, on social media uh, well-known figures that have voiced support for the protesters in Iran. But as far as the community here, uh, it's been very limited and it's really surprising. Well, what do you think are the reasons why you haven't had the wider involvement of the uh, Southern California community uh, in these protests and even greater news coverage in the local media? I think that's the major problem. The local media, the national me- news media have totally ignored this story. And it's, it's horrific. It's horrible. I think it's because of the news media not covering the Iran protests in Iran and also the Iranian-American community. Uh, This is a major human rights, social justice issue. It it has nothing to do with partisan politics of, you know, Democrats or Republicans. It's a human rights issue. And it's horrific that the story hasn't gotten larger coverage. Well, you've been one of the journalists actually going out to the protests to try to find out what's going on. And and what have you learned from uh, the people you've spoken to about what they hope to achieve and also how these protests in Southern California are being seen inside Iran? What, what impact are they making there? Well, the protesters here in Southern California from the Iranian American community are trying to be the voices for their compatriots, for their friends, for their family members back in Iran. Those folks in Iran do not have a voice right now. Uh, the internet has been quashed or, or heavily suppressed in Iran, so they're not able to get out the messaging, uh, the videos, the, the photographs of how the protesters are being beaten, imprisoned, raped uh, in Iran. So they've reached out to their friends and family in Southern California and the rest of the, uh, the U.S. to be their voice to share the atrocities. So there's some direct communication going on between uh, those two different groups inside Iran and in Southern California. Correct, correct. So the Southern California Iranian American community is just basically trying to get the message out. They're trying to get the news, the information out to the rest of the free world, the rest, you know, the rest of uh, America to say, hey, don't sit quietly there is a human rights catastrophe going on in Iran, and we need your help. We need the help of the U.S. government, the Western governments, to step in and uh, pressure the Iranian government to stop killing, imprisoning, beating these prisoners that are unarmed. They're just demanding freedom, civil disobedience without any weaponry. Um, and, and they're just being beaten and killed and raped. That's, that's been their largest uh, objective, to try to get media attention and also the attention of elected officials. Uh, the impact it's had on those protesters in Iran is massive. When they have been able to you know, get onto social media or, or the internet through various facets, 
they've seen the protests from their brethren here in uh, the U.S., whether it's Southern California or elsewhere uh, in in Europe or, or America. They've come back and said, wow, this has given us encouragement. This has given us hope. We don't feel like we're alone. We feel like our compatriots, our family members, our friends who are of us, who are Iranian, uh, haven't left us alone, haven't forgotten us. And they've, they've felt a sense of camaraderie, unity, and it's given them encouragement to continue their protest, to continue the fight on their end, which is really courageous. Well, Carmel Melamed, Iranian-American journalist in L.A., thanks for shining a spotlight on those protests, and nice of you to join us on Flashpoint Iran. Thank you. Pleasure. That's all for our show. I'm Michael Lippin in Washington. Great to have you with us, and we hope you'll come back next week for another Flashpoint Iran.